0: Hi guys, it's Alistair McKenzie here, sports physiotherapist from the UK, and welcome to Research Unpacked from the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, we have part two with Dr. Tim McGrath. Tim is a sports physiotherapist from Australia with over 20 years of clinical experience. He completed his PhD from the Research Institute of Sport and Exercise at the University of Canberra on the topic of ACL rehab and returning to sport following knee injury. He is the founder of Elite Rehab, a high performance sports medicine clinic in Canberra, Australia and he is also a director of the Australian based company Pitch Ready, which blends clinical insights with data science to provide squad based injury prevention and return to sport testing following a lower limb injury. On today's episode we are following on from part two and discussing Tim's second paper titled An Ecological Study of ACL Reconstruction Part Two. Functional performance tests correlate with return to sport outcomes. This again was published in the Orthopaedic Journal of Sports Medicine in 2017. This episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of the Force Frame. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation, the Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the Force Frame is also used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. As a portable and easy-to-use system, the Force Frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured, time after time again. To learn more about the Force Frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. You are listening to Research Unpacked with me, Alistair McKenzie, and here is today's episode with Tim McGrath. Tim, I really enjoyed part one, and I'm really looking forward to chatting more about your follow up paper, so thanks for, for giving up more of your time. Good, good, thanks for having me. So, leading on from part one, where we discussed your first paper on clinical tests. Uh, Your your follow-up part then sought to correlate functional performance tests with return to sport outcomes following ACL reconstruction, right?
1: Yeah, it was a massive, it was a pretty massive project and, you you know, it was more about I couldn't fit it all into one paper. So I thought it was just a nice, um, it was just a nice sort of way of dividing, dividing the two up.
0: So can you give us a bit of an introduction about what you, what you did in the study and, and what you explored? So again, at that point in time,
1: um, yeah, post post injury um, was was very time derived. You know, there was a normal expectation around when people should be right to do different different sorts of things. Um, So it was very much about kind of trying to quantify recovery at different different stages. Um, And also the the, um, it was probably inadvertent rather than anything else. But then looking, you know, we had the ability of two different graft types. We had uh, synthetic grafts, which really have no um, donor site morbidity um, and, and really at the time they were being um, sort of tried to be pushed to something where you could, you know, get an elite athlete back within a really sort of condensed period of time. So you're really able to just push them functionally as much as anything else. Um, so it really did sort of allow a bit of a, um indirect comparison between uh you know the the more classical sort of autograft based procedure which is going to have some dinosaur morbidity um versus one that you know that is really not a factor at all
0: yeah we'll get into results but we discussed previously that the trajectory of recovery is pretty similar despite the graft type um and it's just managing the nuances of the different graft types differently right
1: absolutely and it just it just seemed like um if you held up the the two grafts there, there was um you know, the, the uh, synthetic group was a bit higher generally with some of the... But that was just because it was a, a bias, um, you know, a bias of the sample group where they just happened to be in a slightly better state before the, before the, um, you know, before the operation. I don't think it had anything to do with um, the graft type or anything like that. So it was, it was really about the point that they started at tended to dictate how they went afterwards as opposed to, you know, a hamstring graft was a, a much... Um, a slower burn in terms of trying to get some of those kind of you know functional characteristics back.
0: Cool. And what functional tests did you look at and what time points did you look at them? And can you can you go into a little bit of detail about those?
1: So so we started everywhere from kind of eight but we did pre op, um which was interesting because um people sort of tend to do that um you know from time to time. Um and the results for those were probably not as useful as I thought that they might be because there was a real dumbing down effect of even the good leg compared to the operated leg. So you would assume that your good leg is going to do what your leg normally does and your bad leg is going to be, you know, compromised because it's had an injury. But I would say that, that the um, the actual non-injured leg would, you know, was was generally dumbed down or, you know, suboptimal compared to the, you know, what it would um basically be so I think the body is, is inherently very good at just kind of just pulling the whole pulling the whole system back so we did we did pre, pre-op um, and then at, um, at monthly interviews uh, monthly intervals after starting from eight weeks all the way up through to to six months um, and, and you know and then we sort of then followed them up to how that correlated with uh, return to sport outcomes at, at 12 months and then the two-year mark
0: yeah and that's a really interesting point and I guess. Certainly, I did, or I would assume that when looking at these kind of comparative studies, that the non-injured leg is generally the benchmark of what that limb is capable of prior to injury or or at full health and performance. But it would also be sensible to consider that the body will probably have like a centrally mediated response to that injury affecting that limb. So, so that is really interesting to consider. Um, and then testing wise, you you looked at isokinetic testing for quad and hamstring strength single leg step down onto a force platform your hop tests and and peak speed so which one of these or any of these would you deem the most useful in approaching readiness to return the single biggest
1: thing that came from from that data set was that the thing that had the highest correlation with return to sport outcomes was literally just how fast they ran so um the you know we start talking about um, return to sport tests you know hot tests for example feature quite prominently in terms of someone being you know ready to return to sport um, a lot of those capacity sort of based tests you know being um, uh, ability to absorb and produce force strength those sorts of things they, they were really you know they had a they had a um, a reasonably large sort of effect size in terms of correlation but It was nowhere near as far as strong as just simply running fast. So I see those being as being foundational sort of measures. I don't see them as being endpoint with you know right at the very end when someone's sort of going back to sport. So um, that's how we tend to tend to use that now. Is it's it's a foundational sort of element to to the rehab um, that you have a body part that can absorb and produce force. Um, But really, if you're looking at you know return a sport test. really the, the closer something is to the actual end point which of sport which is that they have to run fast they have to change direction they have to do all those sorts of things then then the you know that test is probably going to be more useful than just literally things that you're going to measure in the gym
0: yeah and that's interesting and probably some of those um fundamental capacity tests that you describe are quite commonly considered as discharge criteria maybe not not in sporting institutes, but we aim to, like you said, replicate the demands as close as possible. Um, but also from the athletes' perspective as well, being able to run fast and be agile is probably much more meaningful for them in their stage of readiness compared to these heavily confined tests.
1: Definitely, and it was a stepping off point to when we started, you know, refining the process towards the skill components that come into. Like return to sport, so um, so speed is something that features quite prominently in that because we're trying to um, we want to have tests that are uh, you know uh, sterile enough so we can compare apples to apples, uh, but not so um, sterile that they get removed from the you know the end goal, which is you know return to sport. So um, so speed is a is a nice easy way of creating enough duress to really sort of test the system. Um, but in a controlled enough manner that you can, um, you know, really get a, a much more sort of controllable, controllable situation when you're trying to work out, you know, is someone, you know, how do they, how do they actually perform?
0: Yeah, and we're we're lucky enough to use GPS to guide our our exposures to different running loads, and and that's what you used in this study. But I appreciate uh, as as you do that not not all of us will have access to that data, so what would you recommend if you had no GPS system but you wanted to test their peak speed capacity? Would you you literally do a stopwatch and a couple of cones kind of job or what would you recommend?
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like I'm a bit of an old dinosaur sometimes because, you know, GPS really came in sort of, um, I'd been in professional sport for about, I don't know, maybe five or six years before GPS was even a thing. So it's almost like I got my first mobile phone when I was at university. So what did we sort of do before that? So, um, you know, for you know, prior to that, it was all hand timed, and and you can um, you can sort of argue the merits of whether that's accurate or not. But you know, su- subjectivity is a is is really quite an accurate thing at the end of the day. And as long as you can have confidence in what someone is actually telling you at the end of the day, then that can be really um, as good information as 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 anything else. So. Um, Someone having a perception that they're running really fast is is generally um, probably pretty close to the fact that they were you know running fast or not. And if it's a if it is a more experienced athlete, then they generally know their body pretty well and they will give you pretty good information most of the time.
0: Yeah, great answer. And um, it reminds me of a time my old club doctor, who was working with England rugby at the time said to me once that the data will only get you so far and the subjectivity or their perception and confidence will ultimately lead the decision-making process when, when you're near return. And if that player is holding back or hesitant during a linear sprint, then regardless of data, you, you know they're probably not ready yet. And and a lot of the, the skill components is about trying to, like when you're trying to problem-solve that, it,
1: it can be lack of capacity, it can be fear, because a lot of the positions that... um that an athlete will adopt with things like you know high speed change of direction is th- their method of um, protecting their body is actually probably more dangerous than what they than, you know what they sort of realize. So um, uh, it's a it's a good question. Uh, you see things which we know are kind of aberrant or dangerous, and then that is literally one of the questions. Like were you were you concerned and and because you're trying to work out if it is literally a skill acquisition problem, like it, that's been you know a, a, a motor pattern, if you like, or a skill has been allowed to sort of linger too long in the rehab versus it's a lack of capacity. So they um, they just don't have the ability to absorb and produce force or um, it can just literally be fear. They don't trust their body. So it's about, you know, each of those from a management point of view is probably going to have a very different means of attacking it. Um, and and I think the the best rehab programs are the ones that can be a bit more targeted in that regard, not just make assumptions that Um, the reason why someone's doing that is for a a given you know one given reason
0: yeah and that brings us on nicely to the to the pitch ready work and I really want to find out more about what you do there but before we move on I just want to sum up this paper um, similar to what we did as, as part one so if you had a couple of clinicians either physios or strength coaching reading this paper what would some of the key points that that you would like them to take away from
1: I I think the the biggest one is just that the more um that the closer your test is to sort of the the end goal um is probably the more useful it's going to be so when you're looking at sort of measures of capacity they're probably only mid-stage um kind of indicators if you like that I don't see them as as being um as being the end point for sure uh and you know um symmetry is a is a feature that you know often gets talked about and people being within a certain percentage of their of their body um if when we're talking about measures of capacity which is very much what that paper was about if it comes to a debate between symmetry versus absolute numbers you know relative to that that demographic that you're talking about i, I if someone is asymmetrical but within a um you know, within a, a peer group sort of level, then I would I would take that any day of the week.
0: Yeah, and that's a good point. I think we are at risk trying to chase symmetries all the time with with some tests, and I think it's easy to get lost in that pursuit. So what you're saying is as long as the absolute strength of the injured limb is above the desired benchmark, you, you can probably be quite comfortable in that and then move on to, to the next
1: yeah. And, and I'm, I'm not scared by it generally. Like as if they're within a, if they're within a good tolerance from an absolute point of view, then I, I haven't been burned by sort of letting that, letting that ride. I, I um, you know, on, on average, in terms of performance tests specifically, not skill-based ones, we, they tend to be pretty close to the mark to each other. So on a, on a, on a general level, I'd say that most people are symmetrical, but, but having said that from a, from a, like a return to sport feature, it's, it's not a deal breaker for me, for sure.
0: Yeah, fantastic, mate. And it's a really great paper. And But hearing you talk about it um, really comes across the, the clinical side or the practical side of this knowledge. So I know that there's some real cool clinical pearls in there that I'll certainly take away um, and they'll inform my practice from now on. Um, but hopefully the listeners, I'm sure, will, will find the same. So thanks. Thanks a lot for that. Um, but let's let's talk about Pitch Ready. Um, what's your day-to-day kind of job at Pitch Ready and and what do you do over there? So the way
1: people that know me know that I love an analogy
0: and and probably get bored by it at the end of the day,
1: but it's the only way that I can sort of try and explain things most times. So um, Pitch Ready really is looking at two, you know, if you're a a racing car team, you've got two components to it. You've got the racing car driver and you've got the, you know, the racing car itself. So in terms of of an athlete, all the, um, the racing car itself is all the bits that make him, you know, strong and powerful and fast. So, you know, strength, um, uh, power, um, you know, all, all those sort of physical, physical qualities that, that that don't necessarily relate to a skill base necessarily. They're more just your general sort of athletic qualities. Um, and then the racing car driver itself is. You know the ability to sort of go around a track at a hundred and you know eighty kilometers an hour or whatever the miles per hour version is um, and you know not crashing into the wall so if you if you're you know driving a car at sixty kilometers an hour um, around the track, then you can have a blood alcohol that's sort of three times the legal limit, and if you've been driving for a little while, you won't crash the car as opposed to you know when you go down a track really really quick you, you, it's all this feed forward um, kind of aspects where your body has to process information really quickly. And it uh, doesn't really have time to think it's all just just reaction. Um, so, so really, the skill component for me is, you know, um, trying to get uh, estimates of, of that in terms of people's, you know, that, that sort of feed-forward mechanism. Because when you, you start talking about mechanisms of ACL, for example, the, the time period from um, foot contact to when they do their knees is about 40 milliseconds, you know, and your, your brain's ability to work out what just happened is something around you know two hundred to five hundred milliseconds so it 's miles after the after the fact so when when you're rehabbing people you, you have to try and find ways of hard coding in um, movement preferences if you like, which don 't set them up for set them up for fail um, and it, it does it does trigger a lot of debate in terms of you know how much can you change someone and what 's meaningful and what 's not and all those sorts of things but but for me it's it 's just big rocks it 's not um you know, it's really there's a couple of key things that I think are important in terms of um, you know injury reduction and and return to sport. Which if they don't have those in place, then I um, they're traditionally really really high risk. Um, so it's it's really just about trying to get the big rocks in place, if you like, from a from a skill point of view. But but really for for pitch ready, it's really about just trying to get as many of those two you know big pillars in place um, a, as you can. And then um, from that, then being able to be targeted with your intervention. So um, programs like the FIFA 11, for example, are, are by by nature designed to be big and broad and, and covering off on a lot of the things that we know are important in terms of injury prevention. There's no ability for dose response. So um, exposing someone to you know, an intervention doesn't necessarily mean that they respond to that. And um, from all other aspects of programming uh there 's you know different lots of roads lead to rome um and it 's really you know if someone if someone responds to that then great um, if they don 't then you need to change your intervention, but it doesn 't guarantee that just because you expose them to that that single thing that it's it 's going to change it and and likewise, from a return to sport aspect it 's really about saving your um, you know your battery of testing to the end point right before they go back to sport um, I think is has some real limitations and it 's because if they if they 're all within a good normal space across all the spectrum of things that we know that go into re injury risk then you, you probably didn 't need to test them in the first place because they probably would have been fine um, you know it 's really about trying to make yourself feel better about it at the end of the day, but in terms of um, if something is outside of a normal range and it's important, leaving it right till the end means that you're um, you've got no time to do anything about it anyway. So, um, classically, they've already told, uh, you know the medical staff have already told the coach that they're due back in two weeks or something like that. So, really, most of the time they probably roll the dice. So, what was the point in sort of trying to get any objectivity around it? So, I think it's much better. To bring all those aspects in a lot earlier in the piece and then try and, you know, just surviving rehab is not a, um, is not a good metric for me in terms of, you know, how they're coping within rehab. So it's really about looking at these big pillars that, that, um, uh, that, that can be important within the rehab spectrum and then, um, not only ensuring that they, they are safe, but, you know, helping from a, from a programming point of view as well where you can really be as targeted as as humanly possible so it helps me from a programming point you know point of view not just from a you know risk assessment but really about when I'm trying to rehab someone what what are the most important things that I want to try and get into a get into their week
0: yeah so can you can you provide like a an overview maybe a summary of some of your pillars of rehab or pillars of performance that you you just discussed then
1: I really like again within those two broad themes. So, if, so if we're talking about your, you know, your leg capacity, like, you know, I, I tend to think of it, um, like with those other papers we were talking about is a lot of the functional milestones I think about, um, like a totem pole. So you've got to get your foundational strength things in, in, you know, in place first. Um, then you can sort of start shifting things on that sort of, um, power continuum. So, um, once they've got ability of the need to tolerate, um, compressive load so I, I don't do isokinetics anymore um, literally just um, uh, biomechanics of uh, repeat single leg squatting is, is enough because it just shows that that the knee demonstrates that the knee can tolerate that that compressive load um, uh, and then foundational sort of hip groin hamstring calf strength because um, when we from the mechanical point of view we're trying to find ways of unloading the knee and an easy way of doing that is you know, ankle stiffness and, and load being attenuated at the calf. And um, that can be a foreign stimulus for people. So if they have, you know, they don't have good, good calf, good calf capacity, then you can start creating, you know, soleus strains and, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, and then same thing with, with hamstring is, that, you know, it's important for generation of speed. So um, once you've got a, like we said with that first one, nice happy knee that's, you know, tolerating the, the exposure, um, then that kind of foundational strength generally across the across the body um, then it's more about sort of concentric power so producing force not necessarily um, you know the the absorption part just yet um, then it becomes about kind of absorbing and producing it so that the you know and then doing it really quickly um, then from the the skill aspect it's it's really you know um, if, if you look at the big pillars of injury mechanisms it's it's generally um, foot going wide of center of mass. Um, when they decelerate, nothing is attenuated at the ankle. So if you look at most people hurting their knee, they, they decelerate with their contralateral leg. Um, their leg ends up because they're, if they're trying to generate, you know, going stepping in a direction, but the the inside leg is the big braking leg that really forces their leg to go really wide. So the ability to heavily decelerate on that, that ipsilateral side is, is really quite important. Um, and at the end of the day the bit that really dictates if they do their knee or not is the you know where it's positioned in space at the at the point of foot contact so if someone has you know combinations of low knee flexion valgus internal rotation at foot contact then especially if it's in a fairly controlled situation then it's only going to you know potentially need another one or two layers of chaos that sport provides that's that's going to potentially unravel them and if you you know a question always comes well okay why why that moment why did that you know they, they stepped a thousand times like why did it happen that one particular time and and for me it's and if and i and it hasn't been disproving it when you actually talk to the athlete is you know what was foreign about that moment and usually it's about pressure or something that that just forced them into that kind of hundred and eighty k an hour scenario that that you know their body made a choice and it didn't necessarily make a make a good one so it's um in a rehab setting it's about trying to prepare them literally for almost that that worst case scenario so it really needs to be something quite quite chaotic for you know for those those um you know that kind of mechanism to to leak
0: out yeah fantastic mate fantastic answer and it shows again all the combination of your clinical expertise with with the research side of it so really enjoyed listening to that and and speaking about the research i know you are the director of research for pitch ready as well so can you give any insight into uh, some of the studies you're conducting or or about to publish and so on? Yeah,
1: so it's, it's really about, like I said, these two pillars. And, and what we've been doing is um, when I finished my PhD, I went and did a um, computer science degree because I I um, the, the further down this project that I got, the um, the, the bigger the data sets were getting. And, and I tried to get lots of help uh, from, you know, Computer scientists, in terms of getting, you know, you start getting into biomechanical data, and you know, you're sampling at sort of 200 hertz upwards, so it can the volume of data can can get out of control really, really quickly. And um, it, it used to be, it used to take me five or six hours just to um, just to process kind of one person's one person's data. So it was about trying to be able to pull all this information together um, really quickly, and you know, you need to be able to understand coding to be able to to do that. Um, so, so since we built the the Pitcher platform, like we we pull it all into the into the single sort of um, single area, and then that enables us to be able to kind of run, you know, run run insights against how all these variables compare, and then um, you know performance, general performance related metrics. So, so re- what we're working on now is okay, totally um, blinded. So just looking purely at the data. So remove the remove the human aspect. What's What's my ability to kind of predict which one was their injured leg, you know, in a return to sport setting, just based purely in the data. So knowing nothing about which one's their injured leg and all that sort of stuff. Um, and really looking at those two, what's the power in both of those two forms of tests? So a bit like how does clinical tests compare to functional tests? Now it's really about, okay, well, how does skill-based tests compare to, to your you know, classical capacity-based tests? Um, and if someone's inside a normal range compared to that peer, peer um, population, how does that re, re, uh, how does that compare to re-injury rates when they sort of get you know go back out into the back out into the real world? And and so far the way that's kind of panning out is um, normalising your leg capacity does does lower your risk you know quite no- noticeably. Like I think the people who've normalised their that just that capacity bit alone. The, the re-injury rate historically, we've got sort of uh, around 700 athletes now, so reasonable, reasonable data set. Um, and the re-injury rate for those is sort of a bit over three, three and a half percent. Um, so pretty good when you when you compare to, um, you know, some of the populations you read about. You know, US college is around 20 percent. The AFL uh, 15 year rate is around sort of um, uh, something around 30 uh, percent. As where well the skill components. Um, for people who normalize those skill components, you know, um, the the re injury rate is is low. Like we, you know, haven't really had one re-injured. There was, there was questionably one guy that um, uh, went back and played for 12 months with like, it had a mechanism. Uh, We, we got data on him on the, on the back end and he played a full year of competitive stuff and then had a mechanism sort of 12 months later. So for me, there's some aspects around, okay, you know, did he remain normal and all that sort of stuff. But he would be the only one out of that whole population that has normalised the the skill-based components that we've had a that we've had a re-injury. Um, the the ones that haven't normalised, as in we don't have evidence of it, and COVID created some challenges there where they you know we could, they couldn't get repeat testing because everyone's in bubbles and all that sort of stuff, um, or they just did one test and it was right at the end. But the the re-injury rate for ones that normalise skill, like I said, is potentially we've had one and, and questionably none. Um, as where the the re-injury rate is around 22% for ones that we don't have evidence of normality for. So the the probability of predicting that is you know up around sort of 90% as well of which is which is their injured leg. So um, it's washing out that the skill-based components are much more powerful in terms of um, determining readiness for return to sport. And you know the the even on the pre-injury side, like a lot of the things that we sort of looked at. Um, that eked out in a, in a post injury sense you tend to see them pre-injury so um, uh, that's the big focus for us now is in trying to actually get them before they actually hurt themselves rather than having to try and get involved is actually you know, after the fact is really about trying to stop them before they before they happen so yeah so really it's it's about sort of a bit like um, clinical tests compared to functional tests it's leaking like that the, the the closer the test is to the the end point is really where the The power in that data lies
0: yeah and that's some pretty impressive numbers mate with over 700 athletes and really confident confident outcomes
1: so so like I'm I'm, it's at the point now where I'm really quite confident in the data like you know there's multiple instances where I've had zero input into the actual rehab like it's professional teams that the medical staff are looking after the athlete and really uh, and they're looking for some guidance as to where they sit in terms of that in terms of that spectrum. Um, and it's, and um, my level of confidence with it is, you know, getting stronger sort of all the time where between, you know, literally about making the complicated as, as black and white as, as humanly possible.
0: Yeah, so, so the team collects the data puts it through Pitch Ready, puts it through the platform and you kind of oversee like a consultancy role, um, help them inform or make decisions based on, based on the data.
1: Yeah so so for instance like um like there's an NBA team that um I was I was going to go over there and try and help them with some things that challenges with with COVID meant that couldn't do that so it's um within the realms of um them you know sourcing equipment and that sort of stuff then the the, the end goal is that they can capture the data themselves independently and then really my the the the, the platform itself re, um automatically reports on for that population, where they sit in terms of normality, and then um, has some some general recommendations in terms of things that you know to, to to work on with all those big broad themes that we were talking about. And then really, my job is to try and you know um, a lot of these staff that are working with it. They're smart, they're super smart people in them in themselves. So it's really you really only have to go into the theme base. Like for me, it's it's, it's this theme and. You'll have your preferential drill for that particular theme. Um, for me, my favourite drill is this, and it's really about just trying to make it applicable at the back end of it. So, um, I've I've come from uh, places where you're collecting all sorts of data and um, and using none of it. So, so really, it's that's the opposite of what I want, which is you know anything you collect is usable, yeah, you know, and and implemented within in the program. So really, that's. You know, um, we in Australia we we collect data overseas. Um, we we you know get places to have their own um, ability to capture data and train them how to be able to do that. And then really mine is just to try and help them get get as as good a good an outcome out of that as possible. The, the classic consultant thing is that they try and make themselves the center of the universe. I don't want that. I, I, I it's it's the process is what I'm most interested in, and it's very you know it's very much about trying to um train people in how to use it and understand it as opposed to you know trying to make myself the the center of the universe with it all,
0: yeah, and you said before um people listeners can stay up to date with the research and the work that you're doing with pitch ready on Twitter quite a lot of the time is that right definitely yeah
1: so so that's where a lot of the stuff that we're reading at you know at that given point in time is that's where we you know a lot of the time I just retweet stuff just so I can go and have a read of it myself afterwards, so um you know that's that's the fair assumption is that what's on there is basically the stuff that i'm reading at any given time
0: yeah fantastic mate and um that brings us nicely to the end of part two so thanks again tim for coming on to the show really enjoyed our conversation loads of clinical excellent clinical and research-based insights that i found really useful and i'm sure our listeners have as well no no worries anytime I'd like to say a big thank you to Tim again for coming on today's show and providing us with even more excellent clinical tips in how to manage athletes back following a serious knee injury. So please stay tuned for part three, where me and Tim discuss a more recent paper of his that looks on the determinants of hamstring fascicle length in professional rugby league athletes. To find more informed performance content, head to informperformance.com where you can find all our episodes as well as articles and courses from top professionals in performance and sports medicine. And don't forget to follow us on social media at informperformance on Instagram or at informpod on Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Research Unpacked. Catch us next time for some more performance and sports medicine insights.